see the joy of it is that what I was doing actually was having as much fun as I could out of playing and singing. And the stuff I really dug was the stuff that got me into the business, you know. And a lot of the tracks I did, I was singing. There were some like the first songs I ever learned, you know, like Ain't That a Shame or Bebop or Lula. Right. I've been singing them since I was 15. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. Well, we're picking up from the last two weeks. Uh, the last two weeks we covered the main album, the uh, first album of the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band Deluxe Set. And that was fine. That was a, a great listen. This week we're going to skip to the end because uh, we have a special guest who's going to join us next week and we're going to talk about the demos and the evolution mixes. Right. I'm looking forward to that too. Because there are things on there that I have never heard. So uh, the disc we're skipping to is the uh, the Jams disc. Uh, I believe that's what disc seven. Disc seven. Yes, he and Klaus and and Ringo kind of jam out on stuff. Well, and Yoko too. Yes, yes, this is true. That would, of course, lead to all the jamming that became uh, the Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band album. Right. You know, she sort of approached that record uh, like a jazz record, like, uh, you know, Miles Davis. He, She just sort of went in and said, okay, let's record eight hours worth of material, and I'm going to cut this down to an hour. <laughs> right. In some respects, it's, it's a really modern way to record. I guess the first thing I want to say here is these jams were recorded uh, right around uh, John's 30th birthday. Right. Um, all this recording was kind of around there and, and that kind of shaped what he was playing and fooling around with. This disc is like a precursor to the rock and roll album that came out five years later. Mm-hmm. What I find kind of interesting, John's having a good time. Absolutely. Well, he can hear it, you know, the, the between songs patter, but you know, if I was to compare the two, I mean, certainly these are just jams and they're incomplete and they're not finished. You know, uh, some of them are only, you know, 50 seconds long while he plays something. But it's clearly the music he loves. And on my take, I like it better than the rock and roll album because the production on the rock and roll album it has is more full uh some of it's phil specter but this is like a very tight group and john's just having a great time well you know anytime you get john and ringo and and john and ringo had been playing a lot of this material forever right you know a lot of this is kind of hamburg era material and john and ringo didn't really play much together at that point, but this was the canon of music that everybody knew. I said, you can just hear that he loves this stuff. What I was going to say is it's interesting that, uh, you know, John would be having such a good time when it surrounds one of the more infamous items from the end of the uh, primal sessions on the morning of his 30th birthday was the last time John was ever to see his father, uh, Freddie Lennon. Yeah. It was an emotional time for him, certainly. And and it's also interesting how this particular 
disc counterpoints with the emotional, personal things that he was recording. These other songs are just the songs that he loves. As we said, he was clearly having a, a really good time. This was to be the way that John was to record throughout the rest of his career. He said, you, I'll meet you at the Dakota and we'll go over all the perimeters. So he came back and I met him at the, at the Dakota and he said, look, put together a band. Uh, all I, I want to know that the band is my contemporaries. So if I want to jam on an Everly Brothers song, I want them to know it. Whatever I jam on, I want them to know. And so I put together that band, which is Tony Levin and, and, and uh, Andy Newmark and Hugh Crack and George Small in New York. The Beatles really didn't sort of adopt this style of, you know, jamming in between producing the real music that they're in the studio to do until the White Album. Through Revolver, they just didn't have time. Right. There wasn't jamming in the studio, you know. And I think that George Martin, for the most part, ran a tight ship. You got your stuff done. I'm sure they played stuff. I mean... Well, bits and pieces on, you know, of course, you, you, you have songs which would lead into other songs. and But I mean, right. they didn't run hours of uh, jams like they did really in the White Album uh, on the White Album box, uh, and there's a version of Paul doing You're So Square, actually. Right. I think for the most part, their jamming in the studio was to what it was they were writing. I mean, when you listen to the, the sessions for I Will, you know, he does Los Paranoias, and he does uh, Can You Take Me Back, and, and as he's working on I Will, I recently read an interview with McCartney who said that Lennon wouldn't really help him with the last verse of I Will, which surprised me because that means that they were in the studio working. And, and so he, cause he said he wrote that last verse in the studio. So it was weird that it wasn't finished because I thought it, it, it was, but they did several songs doing that. And he, and you have heard the, uh, the several versions of Blackbird and there's a, slower kind of acoustic version of Helter Skelter. So I think they kind of jammed on that sort of thing more. Yeah, the, but the White Album was also, like you say, where they kind of started to bring in some of these oldies in addition to what they were working on now and, and things that would be coming up in the future, like the alternate version of Let It Be that we've just found out was recorded during the, the White Album sessions. Right. Then you've got the Get Back sessions where it's all out Almost nothing but this because they don't have enough material to <laughs> fill camera time. <laughs> right. Plus, in Get Back, that was kind of the whole philosophy of it, was that they were getting back to what they were. And so playing all these old songs was part of the concept. They considered actually doing some. Of course, it, the, the album became... Something different. Yes. And then from the Abbey Road outtakes... They were pretty much back to, okay, let's just do the songs we're here to do. Of course, John wasn't there for half or more of the Abbey Road sessions. Right. And if you consider that that's really when George Martin took control again, and he said, will you produce this album? He says, I will if you let me produce it. And so I think, you know, with that idea in mind, that they, they worked on their songs. They weren't just going to muck about for a while. As they went their separate ways, they adopted this style of recording, which, like I say, really to a greater or lesser extent, they would continue throughout the rest of their individual careers. Uh, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, Dylan has just released a set which features George Harrison uh, when they were working on some of the material that Dylan would use and some of the material that George would use on uh, All Things Must Pass. And they're doing exactly the same thing. They're, they're goofing on their own material, and then they're also going back and playing Your True Love and uh, various oldies, just just having a good time. Right. And, of course, we haven't heard the uh, Wilburys sessions yet, so who knows what went on there. <laughs> yeah, although they were pretty much in a time crunch because in, in both instances they kind of had to – get things done in 10 days before Bob had to go back out on the road. Right. 
Right. I, th- I think the second album was a lot less tight, but uh, who knows? I'm I just speculating anyway. They may have never played a cover song at all. Well, we know they played Runaway. <laughs> right. Because they, they actually considered Dell for the uh, second or third Wilburys album, depending on how you're counting. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So let's go into some of these tracks. So the jam starts with uh, Johnny Be Good. The Beatles did uh, Johnny Be Good on BBC. <laughs> I like this one a whole lot better. So do I. So do I. And I don't know whether it's just uh, because Lennon's guitar is crunchy and, uh, you know, that that trio, um, it's Klaus Foreman on bass, is really good and they have it down. And so. Uh, Although he fades out of it pretty quickly and goes into Carol, which was really the Beatles' favorite Chuck Berry song almost. Right. John cannot remember lyrics. We knew that, but (laughs) he proves that here. Right. But he can remember chords and the progression of songs pretty well, actually. Yeah, he's, I mean, you know, John's a musical guy. And and, uh, uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed with the internet is seeing so many different performances and John can play a mean guitar. Uh, you know, he, he has a great sense. You never hear him mess up really. Um, so, you know, he's, as I said, he can't get the words, but he certainly can get the music down. You know, <laughs> if you don't know where Johnny B. Good's going, you can just go right into O'Carroll and you probably any number of Chuck Berry songs. Chuck could write songs, but they did all have a bit of similarity. Yeah, well, you know, I think that was Chuck Berry sound. And so, but you look at all those songs lyrically, I mean, there's no similarity. Chuck Berry deserves a literature prize as much as Bob Dylan does. Absolutely. And I bet you Bob Dylan would agree. You know, they're just, he would write these little vignettes of American life and they were great. They're emotional and they're funny. And I mean, there's any number of, buttons that he he hit and that may be one of the reasons why johnny b good wasn't so much a song that the beatles could invest themselves in you know little, little country cabin made it worth it <laughs> it's like uh okay i'll sing this but i don't understand it <laughs> well maybe but you know the the whole vibe of early rock and roll had that aspect of it carl perkins and we forget that Johnny Cash was an early rock and roller. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to get into Carl Perkins here in, in just a little bit. In 1964, uh, Bob, I went over to a country that I know you've visited many times because you're very popular over there, over in England. I went over with a cat by the name of Chuck Berry. Remember oh, that yeah. name? <laughs> oh, yeah. Chuck had never been to England, uh, or neither had I. And uh, I went over there. We did a four-week tour. At the end of the tour, I was getting ready to come back to America the next day. The promoter of the tour said, uh, Perkins, uh, you've been invited to a party tonight. And uh, I said, man, I don't I don't want to go to no party. I got some dirty socks to pack. I got to go to America tomorrow. He said, you might ought to go to this one. I said, well, putting it like that, I'll go for a while. As it turned out, Bob, it was uh, a party that the Beatles uh, gave for me. Okay, so so next is uh, Ain't That a Shame, a song that John would later do a lot. Uh, <laughs> the, the rock and roll sessions in particular, but John has said that that was the first rock and roll song that he ever learned, that Julia taught it to him on the banjo. Well, you can tell it's a, a good song for him. It's, uh, again, because of the instrumentation and the arrangement, it's a lot punchier than the rock and roll version, which I like. The the rhythm is not the same because he hits all the, the guitar bits on the beat and doesn't anticipate them. But, you know, it, it's a great version. I wish it was longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, the other place that it comes up is uh, in the, the toot and a snore sessions in with John and Paul in Los Angeles in 74. They don't play it, but John actually talks about it. You know, he says – no, I don't want to do Ain't That a Shame. I've done that over 20 different studios while recording this album. Wow. I've done Ain't That a Shame in 20 studios on these jam sessions. 
So they thought about it. I guess it was his go-to piece. Then we get a couple versions of of Hold On. They're not real run-throughs. They're a little bit more poppy than what we get on the record itself. I think they only get that name because it's the guitar sound that he plays on Hold On. I mean, it's clearly that session. You listen to both of them, and I don't go, let's hold on. I think it's a little bit more than what you're saying, but I would agree. It's it's a jam on Hold On. Okay, I'll give I'll give you that. <laughs> so, okay, uh, next is is Glad All Over, and as we mentioned, the notes in the book are wrong. It's not the Dave Clark Five version of Glad All Over. It is the Carl Parkins Glad All Over. Right, and you know, you listen to that. That's got that country thing. So. Yeah, I think the Johnny Be Good thing would have been just fine because that was what rock and roll was. But yeah, Glad It All Over is that's a good song. I wouldn't have minded if he did the Dave Clark Five version, but <laughs> that that would have been fun. And <laughs> and uh, actually, there's another one which reminds me of another pop group. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute here. When listening to this, it, another one of those. Gee, it's a shame that John didn't live to see this happen. Had he been around in 85, I think he would have joined Carl Perkins on that Rockabilly special. Yeah, I bet, I bet he would. That would have been something you know, he would have. You know, you would, Paul didn't, but, I mean, Paul is Paul. <laughs> but George and Ringo did, and John would have, too. I mean. And I walked in this uh, castle-like place in the outskirts of London, and uh, I saw who I thought was Ringo Starr standing at the end of the table and I said to the guy that took me to the party I said that looks like one of the Beatles I'd never met them at that time they had never been to America but they, their record of I want to hold your hand was red hot and over here he said I got news for you that is Ringo so I I must tell you I got a little nervous when I saw out of the crowd came uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and uh, everybody, you know, started cheering. And uh, we wound up, I wound up sitting on the floor, and the four Beatles on a couch, and I had an old guitar, and they were saying, uh, Hey, Carl, how'd you kick off right string with the wrong yo yo? I said, Where did you hear that? They said, We got all your old records. I didn't know it till that time. And then the next night, I stayed over and was in the Abbey Road Studios when they recorded uh, Honey Don't, Matchbox, and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. I was sitting there watching them do it. <laughs> well, I'll guarantee you, in the late 50s, when Rockabilly was really coming on strong, that the Beatles, just like myself, you know, they would sit around and play those songs. I'd do Matchbox and Honey Don't. <laughs> Thank you, man. Oh, I know they were in, into you so much. Well, one thing you get out of this this disc is just how much John loved Carl Perkins. Yeah, there's George. George has kind of inherited that mantle, but John was every every bit as much in love with the the songs and the style. Yes, yeah, right. You know, I mean, you know, we were talking about uh, Chuck Berry and some of his lyrics. John seems happier to pull off. Some of uh, Carl's more uh, corn pone lyrics, shall we say. <laughs> right. Yeah, he does a good job on this. Then we get, I guess it's just kind of a jam, Be Faithful to Me, just them fooling around on something. Yeah, it's a rock gospel kind of thing. That is probably stuff that he played in Hamburg on the piano the the style of the piano is chunky chords yeah he plays it perfectly there's there's no fumbling or missed notes i mean he hits it so he knows where to go and what he wants i mean john was not a great piano player but he he knew how to make the sounds he wanted on the piano right really is what great musicians do i mean you take what you have and with your creativity you utilize it and i mean paul's a better piano player although paul's still not a virtuoso i agree with that i mean he 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 could not even play some of the uh, classical pieces that he wrote for the piano right he was actually just sort of letting the computer well you know um there's a piece 
from the Get Back Sessions, and I don't remember the full title, Palace of the Birds. And it's an instrumental. He, he actually is playing it as the as the movie opens. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a technique um, that is mature, but it's not virtuoso. Do you know what song I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah. As Mal is rolling out the drums and all that. Correct. Okay. Uh, then we get uh, Send Me Some Lovin', the Sam Cooke song. Which is basically the same piano chords and style that he just did with Be Faithful to Me. That would show up again in a medley with the Bring It On Home to Me on Rock and Roll. Right. Then what they call Get Backing, and you can hear him playing the Get Back riff, kind of. But this is one that I don't know if I would even call Get Back. <laughs> right. But I, I think it's the same thing as Hold On John in that the tone that he has on the guitar is very much like the tone he played on Get Back. And so I think he just kind of is playing and fell into it for one or two bars and then moved on because there's really not a, a Get Back feel to this at all. Yeah, you're right. Then... Uh, uh, Lost John, which is just another jam. Well, it's an old folk song, kind of a rockabilly. The public domain? I'm pretty sure it's public domain, yeah. Right then, let's carry on with another beautiful little number. This is a, it's another bit of a dancer. Try and figure out your own dance moves to this one. It's called Long Gone Lost John, and we hope you enjoy it. the popular version of it do you i don't know you know okay. I, i'm pretty sure that was a, a british hit looking it up 
Yes, that's correct. Lonnie Donegan had a number two hit with Long Lost John. Donegan modified the lyrics for his own purposes, and those seem to be the ones John Lennon is singing. Interestingly enough, John probably was also familiar with a version of the traditional song uh, that the Everly Brothers performed on their 1962 album, Instant Party. John keeps the run of traditional songs going with Goodnight Irene, which is kind of odd to be coming out of John. (laughs) Right. I don't think he was as focused on just rock and roll as sometimes we think he was. I think he he listened, you know, had a great ear. I mean, look what's coming up after Goodnight Irene. I almost think that it may have been one of the ones in the the bus sing-along. So maybe that's where John was thinking of it from. Because, you know, in in the cut scenes from Magical Mystery Tour. Right. But, you know, here's another thing we we could probably look up, and that is, you know, Goodnight Irene, I think, might have been on Carl Perkins' first album. Let's see. Uh, Carl Perkins did record it, but that was actually much later. The versions John might have been familiar with, Lead Belly, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, the Chet Atkins version from 1959, or the Johnny Cash version from 1964. Next up is You'll Never Walk Alone. Right. Rogers and Hammerstein. Who would have believed that? It's an interesting song for John to sing. But uh, uh, Is that the same as the Pacemakers, You'll Never Walk Alone? Yeah. Which, of course, is a, is now very well known because it's a, it's a soccer song. Right. But it's also a song from Carousel. Yeah. Um, and it was a very popular song, you know, so who knows when he heard it, but I'm just surprised that he would sing that. <laughs> that may be one that Julia would have played, but right, given their proximity to the pacemakers, particularly when they would have been coming up with that as a song to add to their set list, I tend to think that's probably where John got into it. Right, could be. Next up is uh, a version of uh, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier which showed up on the uh, Imagine album. Right. Now, this one, with the acoustic guitar and the bass like that, it almost sounds like Last Train to Clarksville or, or a monkey song. <laughs> well, I could see that. There are several places in this whole set of the Plastic Ono Band that I'm fascinated by the different ideas that he would try and then drop or you know, keep it or alter. This version is very much different than what we hear, which is that cacophonous sound on Imagine. The the next is It'll Be Me, which was originally a B-side to Whole Lot of Shaking Going On by Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, the Pacemakers also recorded the song in 65 or so. Checking the credits, the song was written by Cowboy Jack Clement. Ah, Cowboy Jack Clement. Who is Jack Clement? You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess I can see that. You know, there's lots of stories about uh, after an afternoon, uh, a lunch show at the Cavern, and before the evening show, <laughs> John and Paul would just go to the movies and, and just watch the double feature. <laughs> and it would frequently be, you know, war movies and cowboy movies. Cowboy movies, yeah. Yeah. So, who knows? The tune itself is uh, is a lot of fun, and, and and they made a video for it, and then, you know, John, more of John's illustrations turned into animation. Right. I actually hadn't heard this version before, although there is uh, another one from, I believe, uh, John with Elephant's Memory. Right. <laughs> don't want to get off on any kind of tangent necessarily, but um, some years back, Bob Dylan uh, did a radio series and, and he would talk about when you look at the charts of a particular time and it's full of songs, you know, you have a top 40, you have a top 100 full of songs. Well, as the years pass radio or public consciousness tends to grab a hold of maybe six songs from a year. So if you think 1956, there's these six songs you remember. Maybe most of them will be Presley, but 
there'll only be a few songs that you remember from each year. But there's a whole wealth of music that we've forgotten about that people liked and got into. So who knows where that comes from? To go along with that thought, you look at the 60s, I would say we know a lot more than you know six songs from any given year in the 60s. Most people who are at least even nominally familiar with the era will know probably at least an album or two, you know, 15, 20 songs from any given year at a minimum. I would agree, but you know, it's in large part because music became the thing at the time. You know, it was like everybody was into the music. And so I think there's a period of time where we remember better. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the 80s has, has sort of folded back into that. Yeah, there's there's a dozen songs that we remember from any given year in the 80s. And that's when I was of the age when that should be things that I remember. <laughs> right. And, you know, Dylan's show went way back. Uh, there was stuff from the 20s. And, yeah, you know. the, the old-time radio hour. It, that was one of the very first things on satellite radio, right? Yeah, it, it, it was great. He put out three sets of four CDs each. So there's 12 CDs. And he cleaned up. I'm saying he like sat in his room and cleaned it up. But the, the music is cleaned up. These old recordings, they just sound great. And it's just kind of fascinating to hear not only those songs, but how he curated everything. I mean, these are songs that he found value in. Hi there, friends. You're welcome back to Team Time Radio Hour. Turn your radio up, because I have something I want to talk about. If you listened to the show last week, you know the subject was nothing. So it seems somehow inevitable that this week, something takes center stage. And I think we all know there's only one way to begin. That was something by the Beatles. Written by George Harrison. Actually, that was the first Beatles single that had George on the A-side. You know, he gave that song to Joe Cocker before he decided to do it with the Beatles on Abbey Road. He wrote it for his wife, Patty, who also inspired the song Layla. Women can do that. We come off of that into Honey Don't. As he says on the disc, you know, he, he used to love that one. And it's kind of ironic that it became Ringo's song. Right. That was Beatles for Sale, I think, and and uh, they didn't really have that many songs, so they recorded more copy material, and they didn't have a song for Ringo, and so give him that one. I think the same thing happened with Matchbox earlier. Yeah, and well, even Act Naturally, I mean, you know, that was a very recent song, right? And it's like, of course, it, but it was Ringo who wanted to sing Act Naturally, right? We get John singing. He's got a real vicious vocal on here. Yeah. He does. A, a different take. Um, Paul's been doing Honey Don't in some of his sound checks, which is kind of cool. How would you compare uh, those two versions? Well, I mean, Paul only ever did a sound check version. Uh, so it's, it's, it is kind of laid back and he's just having fun and more sort of listening to the band than John is. Right. You know, John wants to get out there and, and sing. It's like, you know, I know you're here, Ringo, but I'm doing this. <laughs> and isn't that why he's loved? <laughs> exactly. Then we get into uh, an Elvis parody. He, he goes through a couple of different Elvis songs. Uh, Don't Be Cruel, Hound Dog, uh, uh, When I'm Over You. Intentionally slurring as much as he possibly can. <laughs> right. Having fun, I guess. We've been through Chuck Berry. We've been through... Uh, Carl Perkins, we've been through Elvis. I guess they haven't. You didn't do a Little Richard song. No, but I, you know what? Little Richard song did he ever do? Well, there's always the "Rip It Up, Ready Teddy" medley from the Rock and Roll album, and there are stories of him doing "Long Tall Sally" again in sort of just a jam session. I haven't heard that. But yeah, in general, you, you know, they just handed Little Richard over to Paul. But yeah, I think you know. That was Paul's party trick, that he could do Little Richard. And then you listen to this track. I think part of the reason John is not being all that serious with the vocal is, again, because Paul was much better at being Elvis. Yeah, oh yeah. You listen to Don't Be Cruel, you know, Paul's version versus versus John doing it, it's like, Paul sounds like Elvis. Right, <laughs> yeah. 
there's that 80s video that was really pretty cool. Yeah. Then he goes into Matchbox. Right. Another Carl Perkins song. It does a decent job. I mean, you know. One thing I found out about was that uh, Carl Perkins only sort of wrote Matchbox. Uh, There was an old blues song, which was where the majority of the lyrics actually come from. Wow. You know, I've often thought of Paul's story of they basically thought you made up songs. They didn't think about who owned anything or, you know, that wasn't part of their concept. So I think there were a lot of people getting into the music business as young people and uh, they would borrow liberally from others. That was not not unusual. It, it, the the propriety of things has become much tighter as the sums of money grow. This is true, and it will be interesting to see where exactly things go as the sums of money shrink again. <laughs> yeah, you know, because uh, I mean, the music industry is not half of what it was in the eighties, even. Right, but if you look at the 60s, I mean, that, that 60s on for a while, if that's a bubble, then it necessarily will shrink. Now, it's shrinking for other reasons as well. I know younger people than me, because I'm really old, um, who, who don't feel about music as passionately as I did at that age. They like it. There's things they like. But it's not really the same i think overall there are still people who are who really are into music but there's a reason that mtv both took over and crashed as uh, uh, viciously as it did you know music videos are now just another piece of the industry right it got people to listen to the music but it didn't keep them around right all right uh, so matchbox is followed by Again, just a real short, uh, it's really just the riff from I've Got a Feeling. Yes, and, and that's exactly what it is, the riff from I've Got a Feeling. Then uh, Mystery Train. Right. Uh, one thing I noticed, John seemed to be in a, very much in a train mood during the uh, the Plastic Ono Band sessions. You know, he, he was playing train songs all the way through, you know, not included in this disc. Uh, he did a version of Rock Island Line during these sessions. Okay. Was that beat something which he had in his head when he was writing some of these Plastic Ono Band songs or not? I i couldn't tell you. Are you talking about Mystery Train? Train songs in general. Oh. Mystery Train among them. Okay. Could be. I don't know. Like with the Cowboy songs, that's something we know that John had a big love of. Right. Well, Rock Island Line was the song in the Beatles' lives for a while. You know, in Britain, it just became... It started skiffle, really. Right, which is what... what That's what John was playing, was skiffle. You know, he developed, but the thing that started everybody playing was skiffle, because it was easy and sloppy and <laughs> easy to do. So that, that song was real important to everybody. And there's nothing particularly special about Mystery Train. It's just, it, you know, sent me off on that thought. Right. I haven't really thought about listening to that without the idea of them being models for something that, they're, that they might be cutting. Then we get 30 seconds of, of You're So Square. Uh, let's see, Elvis had a hit version of that, and Buddy Holly had a hit version of that. Right. But, of course, Elvis is always so much bigger. <laughs> And uh, I don't care comes out of that. <laughs> really, there are no full Buddy Holly songs or even partial Buddy Holly songs, again, other than You're So Square, in this set. Yeah. I mean, John John was a big Buddy Holly fan. Right. 
And, you know, I, I guess you could say, okay, then in the next year, he would do uh, basically a whole hour's worth of Buddy Holly jams on the clock sessions. I'm not sure I know what those sessions are. John and Yoko were in a hotel. Uh, they were doing an experimental film where the camera was just focused on the clock in the hotel. And the soundtrack to that is the phone rings and, you know, various other sort of real life things. But in between all of that, John is playing Buddy Holly songs. Huh. Weird. I've, uh, I've never seen that. Peggy, Peggy Sue got married and, you know, just all sorts of miscellaneous things. And that was in 71. John wanted to start anew. Yoko convinced him to move over here to New York City. And this was the first place they stayed in the St. Regis Hotel. They stayed at the 17th floor in two suites. One of the suites were offices. And there they also recorded a demo. After Imagine and when they moved to New York, ah. they were in a hotel for X number of weeks. Right. And so as part of that, they just, you know, set up this camera and it's like, well, what are you filming? Oh, we're filming the clock. <laughs> Both the film and the... Uh, uh, soundtrack are known as the clock session. I see. Was that ever commercially released? No. There's a there's a bootleg of about three quarters of it out there. The whole thing's not out there. Huh. Uh, and it wasn't in the Imagine box. So, you know, maybe we'll get it in one of these other boxes. Maybe the Sometime in New York City box, if we ever get one. Right. That's all, Buddy Holly. And then, uh, of course, Paul and Denny did the Two buddies on holiday days. Right. And they did actually release that, although they probably shouldn't have. <laughs> well, that's what, you know, that's what really is, is weird about this time. It's because there's a, there's an interest in what is going on. I mean, here we are doing this podcast about this, but do you get to a point where you're really releasing things that the artists would never want you to hear, you know, and does the, music machine or whoever makes these decisions decide that uh, we're putting out this disc and we're going to put 20 seconds of John playing the riff from I've got a feeling and we're going to do 44 seconds of this piano thing that kind of collapses as soon as he gets started. I mean, there's some really great stuff on here that I really like, but there's also things where you go, oh, okay, now we're just kind of, releasing whatever we can. But is it historically important now? I mean, you know, John hasn't been here for 40 years and, you know, Yoko is just sort of barely at the edge of uh, still managing to hold on to these things. Sean clearly thought that it was worth the public hearing. Right. And, and I get that. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying this is a bad choice. It's a choice. And so therefore I think, okay, so the choice was for what a historical point. And I'm going to pick on this particular song. I've got a feeling because, okay, John can play the riff to I've got a feeling and he does, but what is the point of it being here? I think it's more, it just happened to be at that position on the tape. You know, they're letting sections of the tape run through. Do you think this is all chronological? Well, I don't think this is all one contiguous session. I do think this is, you know, here's 10 minutes from this part of the tape, and here's 10 minutes from this other part of the tape, and between the two parts is just them talking off mic or... You know, we've we've heard what the Beatles sessions were like in between. It's like, there's really sort of not that much of huge interest to listen to. Right. Right. I or mean, at least of huge interest to the non-obsessive. I, <laughs> you know, we're happy to listen to them. Right. And I, I get that. And, you know, I, I am often commented upon about the amount of time that I have, you know, have spent listening and reading and, you know, and so I get all that, but I, I think at some point, because of the way I feel about artists and art, that it is a 
a certain it's a statement. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and some of this strikes me as being superfluous. And and the stuff you'll he he would have left out without a doubt. You know. And I know that historically it's cool. I mean I, I want to hear him do Johnny Be Good. As I said, a lot of these songs here I really like. I like better than the ones that are on the rock and roll album because there's a feeling about them that's just really honest. I'm just saying there are times where you go, what is the point of this? I, I, I agree with you. Uh, it, it's a question. And then particularly when we know that there's more better stuff that's still sitting in the can. You know, the, <laughs> right. like the aforementioned Rock Island Line. Right. You know, we've got we've we've gotten that on a bootleg, and that's a reasonably full version. You know, from what I can tell here, they're just trying to present the best of these two or three days of rock and roll jams. Gotcha. That that seems to be the meaning of this disc. It's you know, how did we get to the point that we're doing Yoko Ono, Plastic Ono Band? You know, she had an idea. But it, her idea was always, okay, you know, one, once the musicians are in a, in a place where they're warmed up and together and happy, then I'll come in and we can start doing my stuff. Right. So that's really what this disc is, is all the stuff that's leading into, okay, we're ready. Let's do Yoko stuff now. Right. Which, in fact, brings us to, to the end of this disc, uh, we get another short version of, uh, of Don't Want to Be a Soldier. L- less monkey sounding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, a, a little bit harder, a little bit closer to what we actually are to get on Imagine. Right. Not as long, but... The Imagine version of Don't Want to Be a Soldier has never been one of my favorite songs. Yeah. It's it's a noise. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a musical noise. Again, from the perspective of... 2021 it's a predecessor of grunge in a lot of ways could be yeah you you can tell how he got from here to what he did on imagine to where other people have taken it right then we get another short version of lost john then we get a a really pretty cool track and this is kind of the the lead-in to the the day-long yoko ono plastic ono band sessions it's a really neat version of, of Don't Worry, Kyoko. Yeah. You know, Yoko's doing her thing, and, and John is actually, he's doing, I guess, their backing vocals, but they, they work. Yeah, they do. I was actually really surprised uh, about that, that they work. <laughs> it's only somewhat avant-garde. Yeah. But I assume that... I'm thinking because if this version was in October and Cold Turkey and Don't Worry were was released also in October, they also did Don't Worry in uh, Toronto. I was just trying to uh, ascertain whether this version is pre the single. No, I, I think it's post. Okay, so they've already done it. Now they're doing a, kind of a a jam. Yeah. That's cool. Cold Turkey was recorded on the September the 30th. The Wikipedia doesn't say when Don't Worry was recorded. Uh, it was released on the 20th of October. But I would assume that it was probably recorded right around the same time. Right. So it was still fresh, but uh, this would still be coming after the single version. Yeah. As mentioned, on the Blu-ray, the, this is followed by the entirety of the uh, Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band sessions, uh, which is interesting. The, the, the musicians are all having a, a great time. It's less conventional than this version of Don't Worry, Kyoko. Oh, for sure. It's really interesting, and some of John's guitar playing there is amazing. Uh, it was briefly available on YouTube, but it has since been taken down. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band release uh, is available from uh, Sean's label. 
Really? Sean has re-released uh, the Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band album. Hmm. But uh, but for the Raw Sessions, the only way you can get it is on the Blu-ray in this box. Well, I don't have it. So <laughs> Anyway, all right. So that brings us to the end of the jams. Uh, as mentioned at the top of the show, uh, next week we have invited uh, a good friend of the show, uh, singer, songwriter, performer, Mr. Darren Murphy, uh, known to our listeners from the summer of Darren Murphy. We we had him on for six weeks consecutive a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, he, he's going to be joining us, and uh, I'm just going to sit back and, and let you two guys talk <laughs> since it's uh, what we kind of thought about is using the uh, the demos and the evolution mixes as a basis. Uh, I wanted to hear you guys and your opinions on – how well that's representative of both the songwriting process and the, the recording process. Well, that, that'll be fun. Uh, Darren and I have been talking Beatles for a long time. So, but it's been a while. So it'll be very good to see. We've invited him on and he accepted. So we'll, we will have him with us next week. That means he's forgiven me. all right we'll talk to you soon all right subscribe to when they was fab on itunes podbean stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Somebody picks a song. Anybody can sing. No, that's okay. Okay. Anybody know? Free. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.